welcome to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, and we are on episode number 13. Today we speak to Dr. Shannon Grimes, who is a professor of religious and ethical studies at Meredith College in Raleigh, North Carolina. Professor Grimes got her PhD in 2006 from Syracuse University in Syracuse, New York, and we are talking to her about her first book, Becoming Gold, Zosimos of Panopolis and the Alchemical Arts in Roman Egypt from Rubido Press. And that should be available here in January of 2019. Dr. Grimes' research interests center on religion and philosophy in the Greco-Roman period and late antiquity, and she is especially interested in religious views of nature and the cosmos. Currently, she is focusing on alchemy and astronomy in antiquity, and how these sciences have sparked the religious imagination. It was great to talk to her about Zosimos, because there really isn't too much out there on him, and it really is time for a more detailed look into his perspective, his writings, and his practice. So her book is a very welcome addition to the uh, Zosimos conversation, and I am really looking forward to it. Unfortunately, at the beginning of the interview, we talked for a good 15 minutes without the record um, button being pressed, so that kind of sucked. We did lose out on a few interesting nuggets of information, but we did circle back, and hopefully we, we were able to catch everything that we had said before. But overall, fantastic interview, fantastic conversation. Professor Grimes is wonderful. And we're really wishing her the best with this new book. Before we get on to the interview, just a reminder, we do have a Patreon. You can find it at our website, which is themagicianandthefool.podbean.com. Or you can just go straight to Patreon and type in The Magician and the Fool podcast. We have had some listeners reach out and become patrons, and that is very helpful and we appreciate that very much so if you are feeling generous please feel free to go over there and help us make this show self-sustainable other than that that's all i have for now so let's move on to the interview Okay, we are here for the second time now that the record button has been pressed, and um, we're here with Professor Shannon Grimes. It's our pleasure to to host you on the show today to talk about your new book, Becoming Gold, by Rubido Press, and it's all about Zosimos of Panopolis, and welcome to the show again. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you very much for coming. We're really excited about this. Me too. It's my pleasure. So let's kick into it and talk about yourself a little bit. Let's see, how did you get involved and interested in Zosimos of Panopolis? Okay, so I first met Zosimos uh, back when I was a master's student. I was taking a course on alchemy at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco. And we read um, his text on excellence. It's also called The Visions of Zosimos, known by 
both names, also known as on virtue, different ways of translating it. But anyway, it's the text where it's full of underworld imagery, and it's it's really grotesque, actually, including images of uh, flesh-eating priests whose eyes fill with blood and they vomit up the flesh that they just eaten. It's a really bizarre little text, and um, I read it and I I thought it was interesting, but it didn't. Uh, I didn't do anything with it at the time for that course. But later, I was getting my PhD at Syracuse University, and I was taking a course on sacrifice. And my mind kept going back to that text um, because it's full of sacrificial imagery. And I thought, well, this would be a great opportunity to kind of decode it and try to figure out what that meant because I, could, I, didn't, I didn't really have the time during the course. We were looking at so much with alchemy to really focus on that. So I pulled out Zosimos and started um, trying to figure out what this imagery meant the sacrificial imagery, and it took me into this whole world of late ancient um, religion and philosophy that I just found fascinating. And so I thought that would make a great subject for a doctoral dissertation because there's not uh, much done on Zosimos. So yes, Zosimos is a very fascinating character. And like I said, he's one of these guys that if I had a time machine, I'd like to go back and, and visit and see what he was like. He seems to me, he comes across a little bit rebellious. He does kind of admonish some of the other priests and people practicing alchemy. So let's talk about a little bit where where um, he grew up, or at least where he is thought to be from. Let's flesh out his character a little bit, um, get the geographical and cultural context of, of this time frame. So Zosimos is um, writing at the turn of the fourth century. So writing around, I date him around 275. And I think he's writing from Panopolis. There are debates about where he's from. Some say Alexandria, but I'm, I'm pretty sure he's from Panopolis because there are references in his work that match up with other kinds of references that you see in texts that have been discovered in Panopolis. So I'm pretty confident about that. He was a, I think that he was a priest who was overseeing um statue makers, metallurgists, basically in the temple, but part of their work was to make statues of the gods. And he was very, I think, high up. He seems to have been uh, a teacher of teachers. He had students. He is, um, as you said, he gets kind of feisty with other priests and is very critical of them. He seems to have had a kind of administrative role. And I think that he was a scribe. So I've looked into sort of how that would work. What does it mean to be a metallurgist in a temple? And you have the artisans who were doing most of the metal work. And then you had master craftsmen who were trained as scribes who would interpret the ancient recipes, which many were in hieroglyphics. And people didn't read, even in Egypt, didn't really read hieroglyphics. You had to be very highly trained um, to read and decipher the hieroglyphics, which could differ geographically from wherever you were. So if you're collecting recipes from many places, um, the language in which it's written may not appear, you know, be familiar to you. So he's, um, he's interpreting ancient recipes and retranscribing them, I guess, or at least giving instruction to the workers based on what he's finding. That's mostly what he's engaged in. Okay, and we can we talk again about a little a little bit about how this whole secrecy thing is is something that he's concerned with, or the the fact that he doesn't think there should be as much secrecy in alchemy. 
Sure. So uh, priests were not supposed to share those recipes. Um, there was a strict governmental control uh, over metalworking. And only precious, precious metals and even the tools that they used were owned by the state. And so it wasn't until the Roman period that that began to change and you start to get trade guilds. So the traditional um, vows of secrecy that they had to take as metallurgists seemed to be breaking down. And one of the things that alchemy or early alchemy is said to have been started with ancient metallurgical recipes that were now like had Greek philosophy applied to them. And that's often considered the birth of alchemy. And that's why these texts appear in the Roman period, early in the Roman period. But, and I argued that in my dissertation too, but thinking about it um, after some years, I think it's actually the rise of the trade guilds that's responsible for the alchemical recipes appearing because these ancient traditions of secrecy were beginning to break down. Zosimos doesn't like secrecy. He thinks it leads to mystification. He thinks that people are, are using that as a way to bolster themselves, um, maybe to attract customers. Yeah, if they're, you know, part-time priests that are maybe freelancing or trying to advise people outside of the priesthood, they're working with trade guilds, sharing recipes, et cetera, and saying, well, I have this information and I can share it with you and I have this special access or initiation, et cetera. And he doesn't like what he sees. Now, what about the uh, the Jewish metallurgists? Did they have the same sort of trade guild thing going on and the, and the secrecy thing as well? There is evidence of Jewish trade guilds in Egypt, but very little is known about them other than that they existed. And that's, we just don't know much about this stuff. I'm trying to dig deeper, but there's only so much. You have records of them. Definitely that appear. You have an idea of how it's structured. Um, They were usually, for Jewish trade guilds, were usually attached to a synagogue. But it's also possible that you could have a mixed group. So um, you could have Egyptians, Greeks, Jews working together in a trade guild. And that's interesting because it seems like Alexandria had some similar cosmopolitanism, um, you know, in other analogous, um, other analogous sort of subcultures. But one thing I want to, I want to jump back to a thought I had, it's really interesting is the connection of, the trade guilds to their earlier temple culture and the way they're basically ended up being the, the safeguarders and preservers of a, of sacred knowledge essentially, or what was considered sacred knowledge at the time. I can't help but think about the beginnings of the Masonic uh, trade guilds in the middle ages and how they safeguarded, um, you know, esotericism and transmitted it, um, you know, down down the down the centuries. It just not. It's just a very interesting parallel, and it, I think anybody who's who's a Mason uh, listening to this will definitely is definitely already finding this p- p- part of the conversation very interesting to hear that there's a similar mm-hmm. sort of scenario all the way going back that far. Mm-hmm. So, Professor Grimes, were they actually passing along esoteric knowledge though at this point, or did that come later? Um, I'd like to talk about maybe defining what alchemy was at this time. Yeah, 
seems like it was more of producing colored metals rather than the spiritual or religious act that seems to kind of evolve later. So that's one thing I try to uh, dispute or dispel is the idea that alchemists were about changing base metals into gold in the early period. That does definitely come through with later alchemy, but in this period, no, they were coloring metals. And that's um, why I found a lot on that since the dissertation came out. So Egyptian metals were polychromatic and beautifully, beautifully colored. They've only been able to detect it recently, actually within the last, I don't know, 15 years or so, I think to the degree to which the metals were colored. And it was a high art form that was developed or it reached its peak about a thousand years before Zosimos' time. So it's this very ancient art. And there were all kinds of rituals that went into metallurgy. Again, it's a temple practice, but especially making statues of the gods. And Zosimos does talk about making statues of the gods. Um, and I think that in his allegory on excellence, that idea is, is encoded within that text. But I'm sorry, I'm, I'm off on a train of thought here. Bring me back to the question. Um, I, no, I just wanted to maybe get the sense of what alchemy was all about at this time and how, how it changed, because Zosimos seems to add more of a spiritual element to it. Was, okay. are, do you find that being present at all in the prior uh, alchemical I, text? Thank you for bringing me back. Yes. <laughs> So with the God-making aspect, I think that was part of alchemy all along. And that's something that the priests who oversaw the statue makers were mostly involved in those kinds of rituals. So I actually think that Zosimos is probably one of the last of his kind. He's often considered the first one to put, to marry alchemy with spiritual ideas and philosophies. But I would argue now that he's one of the last of his kind to do so in that Egyptian context. And already by his time, it's getting more... Um, diffuse. He's blending Greek ideas, Greek philosophy. He's blending Jewish ideas. It's it's no longer strictly Egyptian, although they're detectable. Those ideas are detectable. Well, and I think it only makes sense because, I mean, in the Egyptian worldview, nothing is nothing in the natural world is actually separate from the divine, but it's a theophany of it. So, right. It, in my understanding, there there wouldn't have been if they were if the control of metallurgy and alchemy was restricted to the temples in the earlier periods, it, it would sort of follow a suit that it was seen as something sacred, or that the Egyptians, with their inherently theological orientation toward everything, would have perceived a sort of imminent sacrality in the process. Making gods, I mean, imagine, imagine the mindset. <laughs> That you would have to go into. And it, there's evidence that Egyptians thought this a very, very serious activity. And I, you can see why, right? You're, you're making an image. You're making a divine image. And so part of it, you have to be extremely pure. Um, even in ancient times, the idea of know thyself was part of that. You had to understand the cosmos and you had to understand yourself really as God. That's what the priests of Egypt did. They, they acted as gods. And so this is Zosimos's, um, this is the Egyptian philosophy that shines through, despite all the Neoplatonism and the Gnosticism and everything else he's putting into his work, that theology is, is a consistent thread. And you talked, at least in your, in your dissertation, you talked about the Suntemata idea of images and objects. 
And there's definitely a strong parallel with what Iamblichus was doing, a contemporary in his theurgy. And um, it seems to parallel quite closely these, these different philosophies and ideas invoking of the gods with these objects. Mm-hmm. So there are many different ways in which um, synthemata or the divine signatures were being used. And so you could have this uh, done in a, I don't mean to put magic down because magic can be, <laughs> magic is a very complicated concept, right? And so it could be put down in antiquity and it could also be used to glorify people who understood the cosmos and were like Zosimos. So that, that word is a very slippery, slippery word, but um, you have kind of more um, superficial, if I could, understandings of cosmic sympathy that um, if you, uh, you know, you, use a bat's wing and fingernail clippings or something to attract whatever you want into your life. Right. But Zosimos and Iamblichus had deeper understandings of cosmic sympathy than most people. Most people thought cosmic sympathy was just uniting different energies of the cosmos together of the world soul, but they had a, a rather a supra cosmic, supra cosmic um, that went beyond the, the divine signatures that they would link together, matter, etc. You know, you work, it's like Plato's ladder. You work from the material and the particular world and you keep going up, up, up. It's an anagogical uh, elevation to the divine realm of Nous. And so they used uh, cosmic sympathy in that way. And not everybody did in that time period. It seems like Zosimos was critical of some forms of magic and worship and um, the use of daimons to maybe force one's will to manifest rather than following the natural harmony of the universe. Right. Can you talk a little bit about, maybe a little bit more about his ideas on magic as well as I'd like to touch on his ideas on astrological timing. Has, has your opinion of that changed at all since the dissertation? No, that's not, no, it's pretty clear in the text how he feels about that. He doesn't talk a whole lot about magic, but he uses it as a bad word, as a bad thing um, for the most part. And, he seems to associate with using force upon fate or using force upon the natural world. I w- in Egyptian terms, I think that fate is equivalent to Maat, the cosmic order, Maat, M-A-A-T. Um, so, yeah, he does, magic is forcing that. So his beef, what you're talking about with the demons and the astrological uh, elements, so there's... All the alchemists, all the metallurgists are using some form of astrology. But there are different ways of conceptualizing um, this. And this is probably due to the influence of um, Greek ideas about astrology that were gaining currency and developing in Egypt at the time. So Zosimos has a more old school um, understanding of doing things in harmony with a cosmic order, which is very much a part of Egyptian religion. You, um, you greet the sun when it rises. You put, the, you, know, you put the sun god to bed at sunset. There's a time and a place for everything, and it's all performed at the most opportune times of nature. So gold making, if you are working with gold, the best time to do that would be in the summertime because that's when the sun is at its peak, for example. Other alchemists, it seems to be a more newfangled uh, theories about astrology, they're using demons um, and they're invoking demons. And so this is, it is called, he calls it unnatural. It's going against the ways of nature 
which again is trying to force fate. So he's considering this a magic, more of a magical act. And um, looking at, for example, at Jewish um, ideas of the cosmos, in which he's often referring to when he talks about these unnatural acts, uh, they had every, like there are 360 degrees, right, in the circle of the zodiac, and every degree had its own demon and its own passwords, and it was very particular, very specific. And so it seems to me that that's the kind of thing that he's rebelling against is this proliferation of demons and trying to gain favor or not, um, you know, either attract them or repel them and their influence in the world. And for Zosimos, it's because the demons represent particularity. There are, you're not gaining cosmic knowledge with the demons. You're not working with cosmic harmony. You're working with very particular issues in a very um, manipulative way. Whereas his ideas are working more in harmony with the whole. The cosmos is a whole. The cosmos is an image of God. And you want to focus on the universal rather than the particular. And this goes back to that idea of know thyself. Mm-hmm. So since we're kind of touching on this now, what's the role of uh, and the importance of meditation for Zosimos? Because I feel like we're, we're flowing naturally into that idea now. Sure. So um, he talks about it a few different places where you want to uh, quell the passions and you want to overcome anger and greed and uh, you don't want to get riled up. You just, it's apatheia. You want to um, purify yourself of the passions and, and become still, become silent. You find that emphasis in the Hermetica too, this meditation and silence. Um, and that's where you can do the real spiritual work. And that's how you know yourself. The goal is to to realize that you are the image to bring out the image of God that is that is you that is the world. And we see reference to uh, this same desire uh, for of, for apatheia in um, Sinasius, even you know of Ptolemy, the the Neoplatonist who was sort of forced to become a early Christian bishop. One of his hymns actually requests for that exact quality. So and it, uh, and interestingly, it also it also asks to be uh, liberated from the negative influence of uh, sublunar di- diamonds. Mm-hmm. So it, it it's just interesting to me because we see not only we see a worldview here, and then we see it sort of permutate permutated in these different individuals in different ways, and the elements of this worldview are sort of you know adjusted. I mean, we we did a. We did an interview with Gregory Shaw on Eamblichus that went really well. We were really excited about that too. And, you know, it's just, it's interesting Eamblichus's take on these things and how in certain ways it's, it's very similar and it's really the same, same issues, same ideas, just, just coming from a different perspective, you know, like in one case you might have a, a Gnostic <clears throat> and then the next case you might have a, you know, um, a Neoplatonic theurgist, and the next case you have a sort of syncretic uh, Egyptian priest who's an alchemist. And to me, it's almost like taking the worldview and turning it and then turning it a little bit, but it's the same world they're all talking about. Mm-hmm. It is. And there, I mean, there are differences too. Uh, I've compared Zosimos's ideas about 
for example, demons or, or what, what kind of powers are there in the heavens? He doesn't talk too much about um, angelic powers, for example, but a couple of times he'll mention them, but it's not a big focus. He mostly talks about uh, the sun or, you know, planets or earthly things, the visible gods that he called, as he calls them. Whereas Yamukas will has a very elaborate cosmic hierarchy and in theurgy, you appease or attract or um, express or find affinity with philia, with all of these different entities as you ascend through the cosmic layers, right? And Zosimos also ascending through the cosmic layers, but without um, making much of these different spiritual beings that others seem to find there. So I, I agree with you. I think that they're all very similar. They have similar practices, similar kinds of worldviews, but they do have noticeable differences too. And I like your image of sort of, you know, turning it around and looking at it from different angles, like a prism. Well, one thing I wanted to mention too, since you talked about the angels is uh, at least one source seems to think that Zosimos, you know, uh, what was it? the that a reference that he uh, seemed to believe that the metal art of metallurgy was transmitted from fallen angels to you know their to human beings to their to their you know consort their human consorts. Um, that's that to me is interesting because that's a you know a reference to the Book of Enoch, mm-hmm. uh, which which shows uh, a deep acquaintance with with uh, Judaic. Judaic ideas about these things too that he had. Absolutely. I don't know that that's Zosimos's view, but he talks about it in a book, a book called Kimia, I think, where he recounts that myth. Um, it's interesting, his his readings of Jewish texts. Now, can I, I want to talk a little bit about Theosebia. Absolutely. With you, because Theosebia, well, Whenever Zosimos brings in Jewish ideas of alchemy or Gnostic ideas of alchemy, it's only in his letters to Theosebia. And so I think that Theosebia may have been a Christian, may have been a a Gnostic Christian. Um, Zosimos never talks about Christians. He'll talk about Jesus occasionally, but he mostly calls them Jews. But he's, he's talking about Gnostic Christian ideas and calling it Jewish, you know, Jewish ideas. So that's interesting too. And it may be there were um, Christians were being persecuted in his area. So maybe it wasn't safe, you know, to talk about them in a very uh, upfront way. I don't know. But um, so he uses Jewish ideas and he'll reject some of the ideas, but then bring others out. He's clearly trying to harmonize Jewish Jewish thought, Greek philosophy, and his own Egyptian and Hermetic ideas. And he weaves them together in such interesting ways. And the idea about the fallen angels is one of them. Again, he's referring to a book, and then he also ties it together with with Isis. There's another, um, Isis the prophetess to her son Horus is a, a chemical excerpt. And so he's weaving those two traditions sort of together um, and finding a way to, you know, praise certain aspects of that. He doesn't like the idea of things coming from demons, and he likes the Isis, the way Isis rebuffs the demons. Well, it's interesting too because I think that, you know, 
and, and we're talking about this, I think in the in the book of Isis, Terus and Horus, uh, I believe it's they're actually characterized as angels, maybe angels of the lower heavens. But yeah, they, it's interesting because yeah, Isis kind of yeah, like, you're right. The but I like her independence and the way that she kind of fights them off and is like, uh-uh, <laughs> you know, and, and in her typical, in her typical way, she, it's interesting how she acquires exactly what the knowledge she seeks. But you're right. There is, there is definitely a paradox there mm-hmm. because these fallen angels are um, kind of demonic, kind of demons in a way. And they teach humans alchemy and Zosimos is practicing alchemy, but yet he's talking against demons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he uses them. I mean, he he encounters them in his work. He, you know, but he doesn't make a lot of them when he talks about his own spiritual uh, quest, I guess, or path. He, you have to transcend them. Always transcend them. Um, well, yeah, the daimonas are so angels. That's cultural. Whether you call them angels or demons, that because demons can be both angelic and demonic, literally in a negative sense, depending on, uh, especially with astrology, depending on what the aspect is, right? So, one demon can be both uh, wrathful or, or loving and peaceful, benevolent. Well, I was gonna. I was gonna mention that you know, from the Gnostic worldview, technically anything under the pleroma is is in a sense demonic mm-hmm. you know, because from the Gnostic perspective, the Pleroma is really where heaven truly starts the light world. And so even the planetary gods are essentially from a Gnostic perspective, sort of just high, high types of demons. Yeah. So, so what you're saying, definitely, I mean, in that context, which Zosimus was clearly very aware of. Yeah. I mean, it's true. They, they would kind of all be demonic. Yeah, I was that, I, I was going to say what Dominic said too. It's interesting how, you know, he's talking the the Egyptian temples were the the you know the ones who sort of had originally held the secrets of the metallurgical art. Yet at the same time, other other time he at least makes reference to you know that Jewish tradition, which would state that fallen angels brought it. And then so how do you reconcile those two? Because like, did fallen angels bring it to the Egyptian temples? But you know, clearly that's Clearly, it's also like cultural differences and mythological differences that create these different perspectives. This is where the world of the scribes is so fascinating to me because they're taking all these different stories and they they think in a very integrative way. So they're producing new works that are mixing, you know, all these different teachings. Zosimos has a, a universalism in his thought as many people did back then. Porphyry had it, Yamukas had it, trying to synthesize different cultural um, teachings and present a universal truth from that. So, yeah, and that's part of the work of the scribes. That's what they did. That's in, And that predates even this time period. Egyptian priests were, um, you know, taking in information that they got from other cultures and just absorbing it and, and reframing it. Mm-hmm. And you had mentioned earlier, or we had talked about that um, each of these different perspectives were very similar, but they had their own unique twist. Um, can we mm-hmm. maybe speak a little bit more about the unique twist of, of Zosimos and the alchemical perspective on, say, like uh, ascension and self-improvement, for lack of a better term? Mm. How, how, did, how did that process, 
how was he teaching that process through through alchemy? And I, I think oftentimes it was to Theoseba. Mm-hmm. For him, the idea of the man of light, Phos, uh, P-H-O-S, Phos, is very important. And it's about, well, there's many different ways. I mean, through meditation, through purifying yourself um, of the passions, especially, you evoke the man of light within, which is the divine image. And there are lots of different ways that he teaches. And one of the ways involves uh, Sunthemata or or spiritual exercises, meditative exercises, whether or not you actually have material in front of you or not. These are, I'm sure alchemy works that way on a material level. He looks at the movements of the metals and sees the all, the divine image reflected in the movement of the metals. But he also uses um, techniques starting from the material world that progress up the, like the platonic ladder from the material in the particular up to the progressively more universal and divine. And so he weaves together. There's um, one wonderful text of his called on the letter Omega, where he weaves together the Greek myth of Prometheus and Epimetheus with um, Gnostic ideas about Adam and about Jesus with hermetic ideas. And he's just, it's fascinating for the way he just works all of these things together and makes them all harmonize and basically say the same thing. So I think that for me, that's what's unique about Zosimos is to get a window into the Egyptian scribal methods of working all these different traditions together um, you know, into, into a universal statement about spiritual ascent and becoming God. Cool. And that's what we're kind of all about here. I mean, I know with my personal practice and Janice as well, I mean, we're, we're talking about Gnosticism. We're talking about uh, Neoplatonism. We're just recently talking about esoteric Buddhism and finding all these kind of uni- universal connections between them to, you know, enrich our own development. And it sounds like we're kind of on the same page here with Zosimos, which is awesome. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I, can't help, I can't help being reminded of Simon Magus, Simon of Samaria, you know, when I read Zosimos, because uh, Simon kind of did that similar weaving of these worlds and, and weaving of these references. And I think like Zosimos also his his ideas were multi-leveled. You know, they seem to be describing processes sometimes as much as they're, they're actually, you know, going into a narrative or theological doctrine. I mean, there seems to be an actual description of process. I mean, in the dreams, oh. Zosimos recounts, I mean, they're crazy. <laughs> they're, they're, they're crazy. Like a, a priest who, like, who like vomits up, consumes himself and vomits it back up and then it's it's, it's my <laughs> these images are mind it's like a eucharistic nightmare <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah they are mind-blowing and if you decode that that image as hell and, and that's egyptian underworld imagery i've since you know found um, references to that so <clears throat> that where the souls are annihilated 
in cauldrons in the deepest levels of the underworld. And that's so that you can be reborn. And so Zosimos is drawing off this imagery, which sounds hellish. Um, but it, if you uncode the symbolism, it's actually a tale of spiritual ascent. Can we talk about the symbolism and the, the lessons or the visions of Zosimos? Kind of walk sure. through them, because I know there is this, this first lesson is almost the most striking, where this he meets, he meets a priest, and the priest is the one that had been cut up and had his skin flayed off and burned. Um, it wasn't Zosimos, is that right? It was the priest had, who had had that done to him? Who is the, right. you know, who's the, the dreaming alchemist? True. Good point. Or the, you know, yeah, <laughs> we don't know who this is, but it's this priest who keeps immolating himself or finds himself being immolated. Yeah. Can you talk about maybe the significance of the staircase as well? Sure. So I'm trying to find okay. actually reference to it so that I have details, but I can't remember. There are 15 steps. Right. in the, And so... I think this is a, a reference to ascent and descent and going through the planetary spheres, the seven planetary spheres. And then that top, that would be the 14 going up and down for the seven planetary spheres. But then you have that one step above. And I think that's the step to the Ogdoa, that um, the realm that takes you outside of the cosmos into the Pleroma. And the way that he describes that when he gets to that realm is, um, like you find in, in several Gnostic texts or even Jewish um, texts where there are temples up there, there are temples and there's a river and he, there's a, a serpent, the Ouroboros is guarding this temple and he's told that he has to cut it up, slice it up and then put it back together again. And then that's the stepping stone into the Holy of Holies, essentially. So he goes up, so the staircase is in the first lesson, and the priest is there. Mm-hmm. He talks about how he was cut up and flayed and burned. And then Zosimos wakes up, I think, at, after that encounter, maybe, and f- perhaps falls back asleep. When does this uh, barber appear? Is that the next? Oh, <laughs> Sorry to put you on the spot. <laughs> Let me, you know what I need to do is I need to get the actual text ahead of it. To me, the lessons don't matter. You know, don't matter as okay. much as far as which, what happens in which lesson. Um, but it is. It's like he he does wake up. He falls asleep and then wakes up again and then reports the second phase. So let me see. It's most of the stuff happens in lesson okay. one. And so, really, only in lesson two, he meets Agatha Demon, who is the a dazzling white figure who fixes his attention for a very long time and then immolates himself. And in lesson three, um, they're very short. Lessons two and three are very short. So in lesson three, he sees um, men arriving from the East who tell him to sacrifice himself and then kind of take him outside of the text. Then he wakes up and then the void, the uh, men from the East are still with him and saying it is finished. Hmm. Work is completed. Okay. Yeah. So, so maybe rather than going through and with a with a microscope and looking at every detail, what's the general impression you you get as far as the the progression from maybe the first lesson through the last, and how it relates to maybe the physical act of alchemy? 
what he's describing in this text is at one level, um, it seems to be an operation that's used called the keratakis process. And that is that word is tricky. It's used as both to refer to an instrument as well as to um, a form of metal work that involves different color stages. So moving from the blackening to the whitening, to the yellowing, and then to the reddening stage. All right. So it's a color sequence that he's moving through. So there is, there's a sequence in that sense. And so throughout he's describing his work with the metals and the images show up, like the blackening is clear. There's um, souls burning alive in cauldrons and it's, you know, it's, it's a dark image uh, imagery. So that's the blackening, the burning. Then he sees um, Agathodemon, he appears in lesson two, and that's the whitening stage. You see the dazzling white. But in lesson one, I mean, Zosimos has already taken the journey up to the temple and met the Ouroboros, cut the Ouroboros up and put it back together again. So it's hard. I I wouldn't really uh, try to nail it down to a sequential you know, thing like this stage happens before this stage, at least as far as the, he might be learning in lesson one, that this is where you have to go. This is, you know, this is the goal. And then the progressive lessons, you actually see him accomplishing the goal. So you see the whitening with Agathodemon, who appears as this dazzling white figure that focuses his attention. And then in lesson three, um, you have these men that appear from the East that have a sword and they tell the priest to sacrifice himself yet again. This is like the umpteenth time this has happened in the text. Um, but it's like one last time. So the priest, um, then he proclaims that someone has dismembered him with a sword, cut off his head, burned his, bone, uh, his bones and flesh in the fire. And then the dreaming priest is instructed to do the same. Um, this I think is where he, He's destroying for the very last time all image, all all thought, and just completely merges with the one. And the characters, again, jump out of the text at this point and proclaim that the work has been completed. There is so much to unpack there. I mean, it's It's amazing. In words, this is a really intense um, text, chock full of imagery, just kind of like explaining a dream, right? It's hard to put it. I'm sorry if I sound convoluted, but it's a... You don't, you don't at all. <laughs> well, what strikes me is two, two things immediately strike me. One, clearly, one, it's it, three, actually. The first thing is anybody who's ever had contact with spiritual, with spirits, for instance, in, in uh, dreams or sleep, uh, can probably attest to, and anthropologists, I think, have described this process in initiation in traditional cultures and things like that where you know the often there is this waking up and then going back to sleep and then it just continues it's the same thing continuing the spirit visitation is occurring and the visionary experiences are occurring so it's a sort of in between sleeping and waking state where just that happens where you do wake up frequently so that's very mm-hmm. interesting to me um and then the second thing that co- comes to mind is it's all, it's, it's clearly of course a description of the alchemical process of, you know, taking the prima materia and the, I think the re-sacrificing of the priest has to do with, you know, 
different fa phases of the process where the prime matter is broken down again and then heated and all these things like that. So it's interesting to me in that regard. And then the third thought I had is that this is also a classic shamanic motif of, of you know, because if you, in classic, like, you know, shamanic narratives, the shaman to be, you know, goes through this um, descent into the underworld or ascent into upper world, but they often will get dismembered ritually um, by the spirits who then sort of put the priest back together and infuse it with powers or tokens or things like that. So it's like Osiris too. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just interesting. You can see all these things going on at once in this text. <laughs> yeah, you really can. It's a really fun text to study. Do you get the impression that um, while doing the actual physical alchemy, you're supposed to be doing these meditations on this process at the same time? Was that for was that for Theosebia, or was that for um, anyone practicing alchemy uh, with the actual you know changing met the colors of metals? That's a really great question. And I'm the metallurgists, the artisans, again, there's this kind of division we see between the, the laborers actually working with the metals and then the scribes. But again, the scribes or the master craftsmen are, have been and, and probably are still involved in the metallurgy at, at some level. But I don't know that all metallurgists would have had to have that kind of concentration, maybe encouraged, but I don't know in... Um, how deep that got with them. There's, I, I really don't know, but it's, you really see the ritual activities taking place among the master craftsmen um, and the scribes. So they would have certainly um, been looking at it that way, but I, I don't know to what, I mean, those rituals are lost other than rituals for the making of the statues. For example, the opening of the mouth of the statue that animate the statue. We have record of those kinds of rituals, but um, Zosimos's writings indicate that that was required, and he's also teaching Theosebia about the proper, um, well, the divine man, the di the man of light, or the phos, the the being of light, the divine image that you are supposed to become in order to really do the work well. And so it could be that people wanting statues of the divine that that's the expectation. I don't know that if you're making a plate, you know, or a platter, right. that that would necessarily be an expectation. But for when you're making gods, that would certainly be part of the expectation. Well, and you do have, you do have reference to the man of light in Gnostic texts, for instance. Like I think it's the Gospel of Thomas that says the, uh, within the man of light, there is a man of light and he illuminates the cosmos. Hmm. You know, so, I mean, I think that, this uh, this human of light, as opposed to the human of earth, is a is is a really deep and uh, important concept. Also, the recurrence of Agathos Daimon, who, of course, is a figure in the Hermetica, who is extremely important. He's essentially the initiator of Hermes, and Nous refers to him as the firstborn god who alone spoke divine words. So then you have Agathos Daimon as a priest here. Um, which is fascinating to me because uh, he's also associated in Gnostic tradition with Seth, who, who is mm. you know, considered to be the first prophet or the first priest. Yeah, the initiator. Yeah, so it, it's just, 
it, it to me seems when I see this stuff, I just think he definitely was initiated because he's speaking in this initiatory mystery language. Yeah. It's funny because he, he was doing that thing where he was hiding the secrets in plain sight and using language that other initiates would definitely understand while at the same time writing these narratives that could instruct those who were seeking initiation or in the process of it at the, you know, simultaneously. It's definitely mm-hmm. the work of like a high priest rather than just a simple, you know, simple, like, you know, basic, basic level temple priest. We're definitely looking kind of like with the Yamblichus at, at, at a, at a hierophant, I think here. I think so too. Again, it's hard to find evidence to support it. Intuitively. I, I feel this, um, and I, again, because he's a teacher of other teachers, I think that I think that we can say that. But what rank? I mean, I don't know what rank he had. He talks about um, other master craftsmen holding the rank of prophet, which in Egyptian temple culture was a very, you know, a hierophant, as you said, a very high rank. But um, you know, we don't know for sure. But I agree. I that's what it says to me too. So there's there's not a whole lot out there on Zosimos, unfortunately, which is one reason I'm super excited about your book. What differences can people find in your book from, say, if they've come across your dissertation? Well, I so after doing my dissertation, again, I, I sort of stuck with this idea that alchemy um, originated in the Roman period and it was due to these craftsmen recipes. Um, having, you know, applying Greek philosophy to these. I didn't question that. But again, over the years, I've definitely questioned it and have been driven more to Egypt and trying to flesh out the context. So what what were these metallurgists doing? What was it like to be a priest in Panopolis? I I talk about the priesthood, like the temple at Panopolis. It was a temple. The main temple there was devoted to a god called Min, who was a fertility god but he was associated in the Roman period with Osiris and which makes sense with Zosimos's texts. Um, <clears throat> I look at metallurgy in the ancient world. I look at the relationship with trade guilds, um, but really trying to flesh out this Egyptian cultural piece and try to bring him to life. I've written a cultural biography since we don't know much about Zosimos in his life. The way that we can get to him is by fleshing out the culture in which he was probably living and working and trying to understand him through that. So that's the direction that I took. I love that. Cause I mean, even in your dissertation, you fleshed it out quite a bit for me. You, you did try to flesh out that const context, that cultural context. And it definitely kind of uh, elevated my ideas about alchemy and put it more in perspective. So I really like that. And I, I'm really looking forward to how that is going to evolve in the book and, and get fleshed out even more. Janice, you have anything uh, that we didn't cover that you'd like to talk about? Again, I just think this is, this is just very interesting what you were saying about the rank of profit um, being equivalent to the, you know, somebody who had attained the um, a high position in the trade guild. Again, I mean, I have to call attention and I wrote a, I wrote a, I wrote a paper alluding to this <clears throat> on hermopolitanism, but I have to draw attention to anyone in our uh, audience who's Masons. I mean, I'm sure they have already went wow when they heard about some of this because it parallels uh, 
masonry, Freemasonry, especially esoteric masonry, uh, to a a remarkable degree. And um, it just shows that maybe some of the claims of of Freemasonry may at least be derivatively true. It also is interesting to me because I know that, generally speaking, uh, even though Zosimus was in Panopolis, um, the main god associated with uh, Masonic, or really uh, craftsmen and cra- craftspeople, I should say, and ah. artists. Yeah, Ta, exactly. Yeah, Ta. And, you know, he's also the Masonic god. So that's, it's really interesting to me because in some cases, Ta is associated with men as well, which is, of course, as you know, Ta is associated with Osiris. So it makes sense. Yeah, they all, they flow into each other, for sure. Yeah, this this is this is just. I, I mean, for me, I could. Li- I wish I could actually just go back and live in this world again instead of the modern world because this is this world to me of these days is just infinitely fascinating, and I never get tired of learning about it and trying to. In my opinion, uh, you know, I, I do think that to at least some degree, these experiences are accessible to us today. Um, and I think Jung felt similarly, too. One thing strikes me about what you said. I wish I could go live there again. <laughs> again. <laughs> have, you, have you been there before? I mean, I feel, I feel such a draw to this time period and to this culture, too. Um, and spend, like, working on this, writing a book on this, where I got to, it felt like I was there. Yes. Like, meeting and, and being with, I was with these people. Um, right. <laughs> yeah, it's a. This world makes more sense to me than than the world we live in today. Mm-hmm. Like when I'm reading the when I read the Golden Ass, for instance, I was like, oh, this is so familiar. This world is. I'm so comfortable in this world. You know, this makes sense to me. I can feel it and taste it and see it almost. And when I, you know, reading reading, you know, accounts of that time, and then also this mystical, symbolic, esoteric aspect of this world it just there's something about i i guess i have to say you know regardless of what people think of me for saying so i'm pretty certain i was alive during this time in history previous incarnation and um you know i i'm i'm unconcerned with people's opinions on that uh because it's a conviction i've had for the majority of my life and i i think even you know even in modern days i think we still have people who feel that way if you look at philip k dick for instance he he said the same thing when you know he said well i'm simultaneously living two lives one i'm a i'm one of the early gnostic christians and and then and the other one i'm philip k dick in the modern age and um you know i i don't think that the idea of reincarnation would have necessarily been so strange to these people either since apparently at least among the pythagoreans it was held to be uh held to be held to be fact among them at least for some yeah plato talks about it yeah and i also think that it would make sense especially for people who maybe had that had some level of involvement with these mystery schools and things like that uh in another incarnation there's no reason why they wouldn't feel naturally attracted to the same deep things that they were in previous incarnations and maybe desire to continue that work in some capacity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, I feel very similarly to you about this. I feel like I've been there before and 
working on it was an opportunity. I mean, I would get sucked in as, as if in a dream, you know, at times where I, I just felt like I was there. And it's a, it's a fascinating time period, fascinating blend of cultures. I really especially like the emphasis that you see on the contemplation of the cosmos. And if there's any continuation of the work that <laughs> we did perhaps then, or that was happening then, um, I, that I, th I think that's so important right now. That contemplation of the cosmos as a divine image is necessary in this day and age. And yeah, I agree as well. Um, so I think we're starting to run to the end of our time, unless you guys have anything else. I think we covered quite a bit. Yeah, it, was a, it flew by for me. It was a total delight. And, and once again, I have to emphasize our gratitude to you for coming on and speaking with us about this profound subject. And, and uh, you know, we'd like for people to know how they could get a hold of you and, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about when you think your book is coming out and all these things. Sure. So um, it's been a pleasure talking with you as well. Uh, let's see. As far as I teach at Meredith College, so you could look up Meredith College online, find me there. I mean, when you're saying look for me, I'm not sure. My book is coming out. It's, it was released on the solstice, which I absolutely love. Uh, Rebedo Press is out of New Zealand. So it was re released at the summer solstice for him and the winter solstice for us. And I, I love that. Um, but so he's been taking pre-orders. Those are, will all be shipped. Um, he promises me after Christmas is over and it should, as soon as the things are, the books are shipped, it should be available on Amazon. I would imagine sometime in January. Great. And that's Rubido press. And so that is available to order right now. It was on pre-order up until yeah, the solstice. So that is excellent. And just, just more excellence from Rubedo too. You know, they made a great decision with you and uh, it just continues their sort of impeccable reputation for putting out very high quality material. Well, Aaron Cheek is a great editor to work with and I'm very happy to be publishing with this press. And his own work is actually very interesting oh, as definitely. well. Yes, but definitely. Clear compatibility there. And that's fantastic. That's so cool. <laughs> Okay, it's been fascinating. Again, we want to just thank you very, very much. I'm looking forward to this book, and we would advise everyone to go check it out and buy it because it's going to be illuminating. It adds, adds to the story of Zosimos, um, flushes it out more than we've ever had before, so it's, it's going to be really important. So thank you. And he, that's if you're a Gnostic, if you're a Hermetic, if you're a magician who's working with the Greek magical papyri, if you're a history buff, I mean, if you're into dreams, if you're into psychedelic, uh, horrific visions. Yeah. <laughs> it's all there. Zosimos has everything. If you're into Jung, Jung was really into Zosimos. So yeah. I mean, it has a huge crossover potential for people and it could enrich every one of those people's lives. Hmm. Well, thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's a labor of love, that's for sure. Cool. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Merry Christmas to you. Happy New Year. Okay, episode number 13 is all wrapped up. Once again, we'd like to thank Dr. Grimes for a really compelling conversation. 
We hope everyone goes and gets her book. It's sure to be thought-provoking. I really like how Professor Grimes is able to really enhance the context of ancient Egypt at this time. It's a really intriguing time and place with some really intriguing characters. And we had joked earlier, I, I sometimes see Egypt as almost like the equivalent of nowadays when you have these uh, tech CEOs traveling down to South America to do ayahuasca for their spiritual initiation and development. It seems like Egypt was a spiritual destination for quite some time, and it would have built up quite an interesting culture and atmosphere. Professor Grimes is very informative when it comes to maybe the reality of what alchemy was at this time and where it came from and where it evolved to. So that's knowledge that is very useful and welcome. I wish we had a little bit more time to talk about Theosebia, though, as well as a few other things. You know, after we stop recording, you look back and you think, oh, I wish I would have asked her about this, or I wish we would have talked about that. But there's always time for maybe another interview, especially since we haven't even read the book yet. And so I'm sure reading it will bring up a whole bunch of new questions and ideas and topics to talk about. So definitely check out that book from Rubido Press. And as far as us, you can find us on YouTube, Facebook, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Like us, rate us, subscribe, review, blah, 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 all that stuff. It really does help. Okay, on behalf of myself and Janice, we'd like to say thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed it, and we will see you next time. <laughs>